Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Most of the region's corruption scandals have in fact been procurement related. And if you look across the last decade, you can point pretty much in almost every Latin American country to a major procurement related corruption scandal. You just heard from Wilson Center Latin American Program fellow Daniel Sabet. He was speaking at an event back in June at the Wilson Center titled COVID-19 and Latin America's Epidemic of Corruption. It sets up nicely what we're going to be speaking about today and more on that in a moment. First, I want to tell you, remind you that America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. And I'm your host, John Molesky. Well, the global pandemic continues to have an impact on just about every aspect of our lives. And in nations already struggling with corruption, large expenditures related to an unprecedented health crisis, unfortunately create multiple opportunities for those with less than pure intentions. Our exploration of the problem of COVID-19 related corruption begins with our spotlight interview. And we travel outside the Americas to Berlin, Germany to begin our coverage. Here's Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga, who will introduce our special guest. Take it away, Ricardo. Thanks, John. Delia Ferreira Rubio is the chair of Transparency International and a good friend of the Wilson Center. Delia, we're very glad you could join us today. My pleasure. Latin America's response to the pandemic was clearly hampered by the weakness of the public health system in most of the region, and that was already long before COVID-19. Transparency International in the past has warned about the negative impacts of the looting of the public health care uh, sector worldwide. What is it that happened in the past that has made the region so vulnerable uh, in this situation, Delia? Well, the fact is that uh, the resources that we have lost in corruption in Latin America are the resources that are missing in healthcare systems very clearly. Also in other sectors, but in this case, what we have seen is that the healthcare system uh, in our countries uh, have not been ready to face such an emergency because of lack of resources, lack of supplies, in many cases, lack of hospitals. We have had countries hiring emergency uh, hospitals or lack of professionals in the sector, apart from low salaries, etc. So uh, there is uh, here a clear consequence of the bad use of public resources because of corruption. The, the money has gone to private pockets, not to the uh, public services. And on the other side, this emergency puts together an emergency situation which is global for the first time in our lives at least, and also the health sector. And health sector is one which is very prone to corruption. You know that the studies from the Global Initiative on Health that Transparency International has, uh, has detected that yearly at the global level in normal times, $500 billion are lost in corruption. That's an enormous sum. It's an enormous sum. Imagine with the increased risk uh, that uh, emergencies produce, what would be the result in this case? So what uh, very clearly 
uh, comes across is that the issues of procurement, the issues of already public management of the healthcare sector sort of laid the groundwork for this type of a crisis. Now, as uh, we're going forward, are there measures that Transparency International views as particularly important uh, uh, for governments to uh, show that they are demonstrating accountability? And also, are there areas beyond the procurement sector that are seen as particularly vulnerable and important going forward? Yeah, at the beginning of the, of the crisis of the pandemic, all chapters in Latin America issue a set of recommendations to governments in order to face the need to conduct public procurement for access to supplies to the health sector. And that includes transparency and disclosure of all the information related to uh, procurement agreements. And of course, those countries that have already been working on the digitalization of public procurement have an advantage because it's much simple to share information if you are digitalized. Uh, the problem is that you cannot improvise digitalization. Uh, so transparency, number one, in order to allow accountability and controls. And what we have seen in, in many, many countries during the pandemic is that uh, also uh, the, the control mechanisms are on quarantine. They are not properly working. And that's another problem that we were uh, warning about. In terms of the general trends we have seen, uh, I would say concentration of power very clearly, uh, the use of uh, the COVID as an excuse to issue exceptional measures that goes beyond what the constitution allows the presidents of right. the government or the governors to do, authoritarian responses to the crisis, restrictions on the civic space in many, many countries, and also attacks on free press and particularly investigative journalism uh, working on COVID irregularities or corruption and an increased risk of corruption in particular sectors. Number one, public procurement health sector. We have seen and we have had reports of corruption in prices related to faulty products, uh, the tests that don't test, the, the masks that do not protect, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, hospitals to be um, built in a uh, in, uh, very quickly way that don't arrive to the country, um, conflicts of interest. Uh, we also have um, no provisions in some contracts in case of breach of contract. So uh, the products didn't arrive and nothing happened, so no reaction. That's for public procurement in the health sector. I thing that we have to highlight also. The problem with social subsidies packages that has been created by many uh, governments, which in some cases have given place to clientelism. Right. So uh, not fair distribution. Also with the packages of help for business sector, particularly um, uh, small business and small uh, companies, let's say. And we have seen there some undue influence. So um, the businesses that were not the uh, real addressees of the programs receiving uh, money that were supposed to uh, arrive at other recipients. Other important issue would be the uh, packages from multilaterals 
the uh, IMF funds, for instance, that in some cases are um, given to countries without the accountability provisions in place to guarantee that money goes uh, to whom they are in need instead of going to private pockets. That would be, for the time being, the areas of conflict. And of course, in the future, I think infrastructure would be an area that will be part probably of the reaction in, uh, for the recession, the economic recession after the COVID uh, situation. And infrastructure is a problematic uh, area in terms of uh, corruption. So we have to pay attention to that. That's a very interesting aspect that we really haven't looked at yet or hasn't been closely examined, uh, at least by governments very focused on the emergency. Delia, uh, we're going to have to leave it there today, unfortunately. Thank you again so much for your participation in this uh, interview, uh, and, and good luck with your work. We're going to continue to track what Transparency International is doing in this space. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ricardo, and special thanks to Delia. When we return, our roundtable picks up the discussion. Stick around. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back. Let's get to the roundtable. You heard from Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga during the Spotlight interview. He returns for the roundtable. Hello, Ricardo. Hi, John. Also with us, Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. John, how are you? Doing well, Benjamin. Thank you. And let's welcome back Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hi, John. And also Duncan Wood, Director of the Center's Mexico Institute. Hey, John. And the other regular member of our Team America's 360 is Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. How you doing? I'm doing well. And, and Cindy, if you don't mind, we'll begin with you today. The healthcare sector was already plagued by corruption. Give us a sense of how much worse the situation is in the shadow of the pandemic. Well, John, it's very hard to quantify in the way that um, the interview that we just heard that Delia said that there had been $500 billion dollars of, of fraud um, worldwide. So we don't have a dollars and figure, you know, a dollar sense, but there, there are, have been repeated examples that are reported um, by the press throughout the region and the U.S. press as well, um, you know, given the sheer amount of money that's going into the healthcare sector now to deal with the pandemic, um, things like, you know, overpricing of ventilators and masks in the case of Ecuador, even of body bags, which is kind of shocking and grotesque, you know, channeling contracts to family members or to politically well-connected people. Um, and, and these are not isolated examples. These are across the region, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru, El Salvador, Colombia, I mean, it, Ecuador, you name it, there are cases. And it just speaks to the lack of the um, of accountability in public spending, the lack of controls on public procurement, you know, in uh, across the board, as we heard just a moment ago. One of the things that really struck me uh, about Delia's commentary was, first of all, she was leading into exactly all of that. The scope of the corruption is immense, but the scope of what's to come is something that we haven't gotten our, our hands around entirely because it's quite natural that uh, apart from the health emergency, there's also an economic emergency and the way that traditionally governments and multilateral organizations uh, have uh, dealt uh, with digging out of that has been to spend, uh, for example, on infrastructure, the kinds of sectors where you can hire many people at once in, uh, in short order. 
But in the Americas, at least, infrastructure is certainly one of the other big areas, apart from procurement, that has been a significant uh, target for corruption in the past. And so, uh, and apart from that, you're going to be talking about um, possibly new regulations arising in urban areas so that people are able to do business in different ways. So in everywhere that we see uh, a, a, an opportunity to help improve conditions, we also see uh, opportunities for corruption, unfortunately. Sure, it's true, Ricardo, and clearly, you know, Latin America, when we think of corruption scandals, though the public health sector is particularly vulnerable to corruption, the big ones that come to mind are all infrastructure, right? The whole Odebrecht saga, um, which touched upon every major economy in Latin America, was all about, you know, kickbacks to public figures who are authorizing public works. And you're absolutely right. When you think about so-called uh, shovel-ready projects that you can implement quickly that are essentially job programs and, you know, counter-cyclical spending initiatives, they're almost all infrastructure once you get past the pandemic. And so I think you and Delia are absolutely right to keep a focus on that as well. I think it's Duncan important Wood. to distinguish between sort of two different kinds of corruption that we see in Latin America. There's the first, which is the classic kind of carpet bagging kind, where you see you know, people getting uh, contracts with government, uh, preferential terms, excessive pricing, etc. And in Mexico, we've seen a case of that recently where the son of the head of the Federal Electricity uh, Commission, the electricity uh, utility in Mexico, um, received a contract to sell ventilators to the government at excessive prices. And I think we're going to, you know, eventually see a lot more of that taking place. But there's a second kind of corruption that takes place on a daily basis in Mexico, where ordinary citizens have to pay for access to basic services. Um, in a, a recent survey that was done, uh, throughout Latin America. In fact, Mexico came out in uh, first place, which is the worst place to be in this particular survey, where 51% of Mexican citizens said they had had to pay a bribe for access to some basic services. And I think we're seeing that reflected right now in the lack of trust um, amongst Mexicans in their own healthcare system. Um, you know, a headline in the, uh, on the front page of the New York Times today pointed out that Mexicans would rather die at home than go into hospitals. And when you hear the comments about uh, that Mexicans make about uh, doctors and and and, uh, and and hospitals, you see that there really is no trust in the system at all. And so, you know, we have a peculiar situation in Mexico where we have the most uh, openly um, anti-corruption president uh, in history who claims that he's cleaning out the system, and yet we have people close to the president who are implicated in corruption scandals and a complete lack of trust in the healthcare system on the part of Mexican citizens. Is what Duncan uh, describes in Mexico unique to Mexico, or do we see that situation in other countries where citizens have to pay for access? Cindy? I think um, one, of the, one of the issues that Duncan was just touching on is, is really you know, um, across the region. If you look at the polls by the Latin American Public Opinion Project, LAPOP, um, it actually, shows correlations between certain things and an erosion of support for democracy in this case. And two of the biggest factors are corruption, in other words, being asked to pay a bribe or somehow um, not, you know, having to pay somebody in order to get a public service, including security, um, or being the victim of a crime. And we already know that the support for democracy in the region um, and satisfaction with democracy in the region is at historic uh, lows and um, tolerance for military coups is absolutely correlated with 
um, a sense of affront related to corruption and having, you know, been targeted um, and a victim of crime. So I think that, you know, the um, if corruption is not kept in check and there aren't not just, you know, the opening of investigations, but actual success in prosecuting some of these cases, um, democracy overall in the region is going to suffer. Chris Sands. I think that's true even in countries that we don't normally associate with corruption. Um, Canada, the one that I follow, has been going through a scandal where just the need to respond to coronavirus has generated uh, a willingness on Parliament's part to spend large amounts of money quickly. And speed sometimes leads people to maybe push the envelope and uh, try to get something done quickly, but maybe not as carefully as they ordinarily would. The case in point is a $900 million Canadian program designed to provide services for at-risk youth, particularly on the education side. The government decided, actually the prime minister decided, to sole source it with no bid to a foundation called the We Foundation, run by uh, two young people. Uh, Craig Kilberger, the original founder, was 12 years old in Alberta when he had the idea of kids helping kids around the world and, and set up this, this foundation. The prime minister said, expedience requires that we do this and, and we just have to get this done. That's why we're going to this foundation, which we think is the best. But it turns out that the prime minister's mother, wife, brother, and other members of his family had received speaking fees for, for their work for the foundation. And most speakers, including several noted Canadian celebrities, had not received fees at all. So it was a very uh, personal thing just for the Trudeau family. It cast a big shadow over Trudeau. This represents now his third major ethics investigation since coming into office. Now that's the good news story in all of this. Canada set up a parliamentary ethics officer who reports to parliament, not to any political party. And that's helped Canadians to have some confidence that these investigations will be done on a fair basis. That said, poor judgment on the part of the prime minister. And I think it's hurt even Canadians' ideas about the ethics of their democracy. I think Delia was, was pretty articulate on this matter. I think she said control methods are in quarantine. And I think that's true in every society right now, whether that's distractions, whether that's presidents taking advantage of the ability to move quickly or the, really the urgency when it comes to public health. But yeah, I think all of the civil society mechanisms, the judicial mechanisms, legislative oversight, they're all hibernating right now, sometimes literally because of stay-at-home measures, sometimes because of distraction, governance by executive order. It's just a really great moment to steal. Duncan Wood. For the case of Canada and Mexico, you have a very interesting situation, which is that, of course, the USMCA has a chapter in it, Chapter 27, which speaks specifically about corruption. And uh, these new rules, people are still sort of getting accustomed to them in the implementation process. Um, but I think that this holds the potential uh, down the road for uh, people, companies, governments in Mexico, Canada, the United States to be held to account. So, you know, whilst this may seem like a bonanza right now, with all this money beginning to flow, then I think governments in particular need to be very, very careful about the long-term implications. Now, in the case of Mexico, we're also seeing the fact that the Mexican government has decided it's not really spending stimulus money. So the money that's going out there is on projects that were already uh, in process, and they're large infrastructure projects focusing on uh, you know, oil refineries, uh, train, a tourist train in the south of the country. Um, but nonetheless, the, uh, those rules will still apply. Um, but Mexico is, uh, the Mexican government keeps harping on about corruption. And uh, I think that's a, a message which uh, is playing out well with the Mexican public. The Mexican public seem to believe 
that uh, the president, Lopez Obrador, is committed to fighting corruption. And it's serving his political purposes very, very well as well. It's helping him to silence opponents through the mere threat of a, of a corruption charge. And it's helping other, him to get new information from others, such as the former head of Pemex, Emilio Lozoya, who is being now used by the government to, uh, to garner evidence against former uh, government officials in other areas. So I think it's, uh, you know, this corruption story is going to go on for a long time in Mexico. Given what Duncan just described and AMLO's position on this, is uh, in the upcoming elections, which we talked about in previous episode, uh, is anti-corruption as it relates to corruption related to the pandemic a, a winning campaign slogan? So it can be uh, an absolutely powerful campaign slogan. However, there's another issue, which is uh, Cindy alluded to it, uh, Duncan alluded to it uh, by talking about how the uh, AMLO government is reinforcing itself. Uh, the fact is that periods of stress like this have been followed by periods of instability and slides towards authoritarianism in the past. This is not a uh, a new thing. If you just look at the 1972 earthquake in Nicaragua and everything that stemmed from that one incident, and you think about other tragedies, uh, hurricanes, etc., that have led to the same thing. Now, think about this at a regional and global level. And in the Americas, there are going to be, uh, it is going to take some extraordinary work to be able to reinforce societies and address public goods in ways that governments were already doing uh, fairly poorly, at least by the in the estimation of uh, middle classes and, uh, and, and those in poverty across the region. Add to that the, what, the, what we're going through now, and the recipe is um, for even more skepticism about the governing classes in each one of the countries. Uh, yes, it is an absolutely powerful slogan to run on, but it's also a very powerful slogan for those who are unhappy with their governments and wish to unseat them, whether democratically or not. There, there are a number of public opinion polls in the region that show that corruption is either the number one concern um, of the public or certainly within the top three. I mean, I think that uh, polling has really slowed in, in the midst of the pandemic. But, um, and, and now I, I can't imagine that, you know, issues of, um, you know, food security and the economy and unemployment are not the major factors again. Um, but corruption and especially the sense that people are hurting while other people are making money is an enormously volatile um, issue. And uh, anyone who tries to capture um, that in electoral terms um, and has a credible plan for how he or she is going to, you know, counter it um, has a very, very strong message. I think there's lo lots of reasons to be skeptical about the fight against corruption in Latin America, what we saw in Honduras and Guatemala with these international institutions that over the last year were disbanded, what we've seen occurring in Brazil with backlash against the Lavo Jato. But I think, Cindy, you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of corruption during a pandemic, the costs are real, right? the human costs. If you're buying substandard medical equipment, ventilators, masks, et cetera, because you're skimming off the top and you're siphoning very scarce resources to do so, Hopefully there really would be a backlash and maybe the region can see a renewed fight against corruption. We certainly saw it as politically valuable in Peru, for example, um, where the president's fight for pro, you know, anti-corruption policies against the Congress really elevated his status before the pandemic began. So uh, I do hope that the very real human impacts of corruption that are occurring right now will make it a salient issue in a positive way, not to be manipulated by, by populist candidates.
I, I like Ben's optimism, but I fear that uh, I have to turn back some good old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon pessimism. Um, any candidate who runs on an anti-corruption platform um, has the good news, which is there are seemingly new, uh, uh, sort of endless examples of corruption in the region they can draw on. And uh, we all know that uh, former politicians, former governments have engaged in these kind of activities. The bad news is, is that having been elected on anti-corruption stance, they then have to try to follow through uh, on, their, on their campaign promises. And that's a much more difficult thing. Actually, defeating corruption in the region has proven to be a, uh, a really insuperable challenge for many, many people in the past. And, uh, you know, as I say, I don't think that uh, this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a unique period in, uh, in Latin America or history of the Americas at all. I think we're going to see lots and lots of corruption coming out in the years to come. For quick final thought, Chris. Chris Sands. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things that's interesting about our, the Western Hemisphere is how global this region is and how the news of this region is, is quite global. And you look at the way that corruption has played a part in Xi Jinping's uh, taking control in China, the way that the corruption accusations around Donald Trump have given rise to a pushback on fake news. I think when the, the top countries in the system are, are raising doubts and using corruption in different ways. I think it makes it that much harder for all of us in Latin America and in Canada to try to push back. Well, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we are out of time for this week's discussion. Cindy, Ricardo, Benjamin, Chris Duncan, thank you very much. We'll see you back here next time. And we'd love to hear from you. Please send comments, suggestions, and questions via email to americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.